The UN says that humanity stands on the brink of catastrophic man-made climate change. But is it true? Not a chance. But we do stand on the brink of catastrophic government policies that threaten to ruin the nation our forefathers built and defended against tyranny. So what drives the climate scare, Jay? Besides simple ignorance, the scare is driven by corporate greed and the desire of governments to control all aspects of our lives, Tom. Is this part of something more sinister? Indeed it is. Whether it's climate change or a pandemic or socialism, it really means sacrificing your rights and accepting the tyranny of the fourth branch of government, the bureaucracy. It must be stopped. This is The Other Side of the Story with Dr. Jay Lair and Tom Harris of the International Climate Science Coalition. Cropland prices are soaring across the United States. Iowa is showing a 19.7% increase in cost per acre from a year ago, but the most highly productive land in Iowa and other farm states has jumped 50%. Jay, what is causing this and should we be worried? Well, I don't think we should be worried because, as you know, I'm an eternal optimist. But, you know, prices generally go up. And of course, we're in an inflationary period, although land prices go up and rarely come down, as other things do. But uh, our guest today is certainly far more knowledgeable about land prices than I am. He writes a newsletter that I totally depend on every week. In fact, I guess I have to tell a story about how we became uh, friends in communication. Richard Brock is our uh, guest today, and we'll formally introduce him. But he and I were on a uh, agricultural conference program, must be nearly a decade ago at the University of Missouri, when uh, I gave a lecture talking about the price of corn, which that day was $7.00. Uh, Richard gave a lecture and said he expected it to get down to $4 fairly quickly. I came on stage and made the mistake, or not, of uh, saying I'd bet $1,000 that the price of corn would not drop from $7 to below 4 in the next 24 months. Richard stood up in the audience and said, I'll take that bet. And 16 months later, I wrote Richard a check for $1,000 when corn went below $4. So uh, I've relied on his newsletter ever since, uh, every week, for what I learn about uh, agriculture and really the whole world of agriculture. So I'm very excited to have him as our guest. So, Tom, officially introduce him. Yeah, sure, Jay. Our guest today is Richard, or Rick, Brock, president of Brock Associates. Brock Associates was formed in October 1980 by Rick, who grew up on a central Indiana farm. In 1978, while chief economist for Top Farmers of America, now known as ARI Network Services, Rick was hired to be the personal commodity consultant to Forrest Mars, founder and owner of Mars Candy. (laughs) That's interesting. In addition to consulting on various commodities, Rick managed grain sales on land owned by Mars. At that time, no market advisory firm had specialized in handling grain sales and purchases from a consulting position on a national basis. Mr. Mars became the first client of what is now Brock Associates. 
Today, Brock Associates is one of the largest and most respected agricultural commodity marketing consulting firms in the United States. They manage grain sales on more than 800,000 acres of row crop production throughout North America and oversee grain purchases for numerous agribusinesses. Farm size of subscribers and consulting clients ranges from 600 acres to 30,000 plus acres with individuals using a variety of consulting services. So welcome to the show, Rick. Thanks for having me, Tom. It's fun to be here. And I, I, I want to elaborate a little bit on Jay's story. When Jay, he says he sent me a check for $1,000. I want to show you, though, he's a very smart guy. He wrote the check to my company rather than to me personally, so I still had to pay income taxes on it. <laughs> I did not know that till now, and I, uh, <laughs> apolo I apologize for it. But I thought uh, it was a pretty good move on your part. <laughs> well, <laughs> I'm not, my wife handles all the money in her house. I'm not that smart. But uh, losing that bet, you know, turned out to be really one of the best things I've ever done in agriculture because I've become glued literally every week to your newsletter, comes in the mail once a week, and it immediately goes to the top of my reading pile. And I'm uh, never disappointed with what I learned. Well, since we're talking about uh, the price of agricultural land, I think our listeners would be interested to start out by knowing about how many acres of farmland exist in the United States and how many are actually being farmed. Yeah, you know, that's a slow moving trend. It doesn't change quickly, but uh, in 2022, there will be in major crop productions about 346 and a half million acres. Now, to give you an idea how that compares, it did decline from 13 to 16. From 1998 to 2014, we averaged just under 360 million. So it has slipped uh, slightly down to about 346 million. Out of that 346 million, 318 million uh, this year will be in primary crop production, meaning corn, soybeans, wheat, cotton, and rice. 22 million is in what's called CRP land, Conservation Reserve Program, where a farmer can put it up for bid and the government pays him if they want to take this land out production so much per acre to not farm it. And normally when land goes into those programs, it's in there for about 10 years. So that doesn't change very often. And typically the land that goes into the CRP is land that's not very productive. It might be river bottom ground that floods out quite a bit. It might be in a dry land area that doesn't get much rain. And so the farmer thinks he's better off, you know, taking a, a smaller payment from the government rather than spending money to farm it himself. And then another small percent this year, 6.4 million acres uh, will be in what's called a prevent plant program. And, and like two years ago, to give you an example, there were quite a few acres in that. And what causes that is like in North Dakota two years ago in South Dakota, they had so much rain, they could not get the crop planted. Uh, it just rained constantly during the planting season. So once in a while, there'll be a lot of acres in that, but that's very, very seldom. So most of it, it stays into the corn, soybean, wheat, and cotton, and rice. And, uh, and most of that is corn. And uh, it's interesting. I've seen some people might want to break down. I think I have it uh, available. Uh, this year, we will plant approximately, um, I think it's 86 million acres of corn. Let me get that exactly correct for you. It will be uh, for corn this year. Uh, we're going to plant 88.6 million acres of corn. 
and soybeans, are the next biggest crop, in fact, is now surpassing corn. It's 87 and a half million acres. And then it drops off fairly quickly to the other crops, and not much of that is rice, but it's almost all corn and soybeans. All right, repeat the total number of acres of land once more for our audience that we are Eight, farming in America. Yeah. It's 846.5 million acres. And the most we've ever had in grain production was about six, uh, 364 million acres. And that was 20 years ago. Yeah, I was reading that because farming is so much more efficient now, that there actually is more forest in New England than there were at the time of the, of the Civil War, because the farms are so much more efficient. Is that correct? They're, they're incredibly efficient now. And technology has driven a lot of it. You know, like right now, a farmer can plant uh, around the clock because everything, the tractor is now control, controlled by satellite positioning. So, I mean, the, he didn't even have to turn the lights on. He can just sit there and the tractor is going to drive it itself. And so the technology is just absolutely unbelievable, which is allowing these producers to farm a lot more land uh, than they could before. And then the other factor is, is yields have continued to go up quite a bit. And so... Uh, even though we're farming a little less land, we're producing a lot more crops than we ever have in history. Wow, a great news. Well, that brings me to a logical next question. I'm sure this happens to Tom up in Ottawa, Canada, to me in Ohio. There are always people worried about urban sprawl. They see cities moving out and more developments, and they're concerned that we're going to run out of farmland which is absolutely ridiculous in my mind. And those who travel a lot, as I do from coast to coast, there's hardly anybody living in the United States. It's mostly empty and, of course, mostly being farmed. So if you've never flown across, you may not be aware of that. But do you see a similar problem, Rick, where you know people worry that we're going to run out of farmland, which is ridiculous? No, pe yeah, people have always worried about that, and it's never going to happen. You know, it's it's ridiculous to assume that we're going to have that that problem. Yeah, you do have urban sprawl, uh, but it's minimal. And when you take a look at the percent of land that it takes out of production and it's far offset by the increases in yield. And that's just as important as as the amount of land being farmed. And then we, we have to look at other countries. Brazil keeps bringing more farmland in production every year. And they now surpass us in a large way on soybean production uh, with bringing in um, a new farmland up in northern Mato Grosso. And so, you know, there's more land available around the world. And whenever we get the prices as high as they've been in the last two years, uh, it brings in more production, which is why you know, people look at saying we got really high priced grain. Well, actually, in the last two months, wheat prices have dropped by five dollars a bushel. And uh, I mean, biggest bear market we've seen in a long time. High prices, the cure for high prices is high prices. And so while overall you've got higher corn and soybean prices now than we had three years ago, uh, they've been uh, extremely erratic and the prices are still at extremely profitable levels though. And producers are, are going to have a very profitable year if they're taking advantage of them right now. And, and that's what's been driving the farmland market that you talked about earlier. The reason farmland values are up 50% in the last nine months in the state of Iowa is because of the profitability of the land. And, uh, and farmers have built it in and farmers have accumulated significant wealth over the last 40 years. And a lot of it is being bought by farmers themselves. It's not a lot of land being bought by outside investors right now. 
Well, you mentioned bringing land into cultivation in other countries. Describe how that works. I mean, generally, are you taking down a forest to make arable land or are you that, taking that is land? What's happening. That is okay. what's happening in Brazil. Yeah, they're taking down forests in the northern parts of Brazil. I mean, really, this logging the, the trees out and, uh, and and bringing in increased uh, production, and that's that's where most of your increase is coming from from forest. And obviously, we don't have forest land that we have here is just not productive farmland, so we don't see it happening here in the United States. Well, Tom mentioned Vermont uh, at the beginning of the program, and uh, I remember as a kid uh, that Vermont did have farms and was farmed. In fact, as I recall, 1900, I saw a statistic where uh, 75% of it was farmed and now it's almost none, And which always interests me how the forest and nature reclaims land so quickly. Nature is, uh, is, so, is so resilient. Well, and now you just mentioned who the buyers are not, that most of the buying of farmland is uh, from other farmers. Give us a synopsis of outside people that are buying land, because I think our listeners worry uh, about Bill Gates owning the country or Ted Turner or the Chinese. Uh, Give us a synopsis of where they fit in. Well, I can tell you, it is true that Bill Gates, uh, the Gates Foundation owns a considerable amount of farmland, but on a relative basis, it's still very small. Turner, uh, as most of his land is ranch land, uh, not uh, productive corn land. And the Chinese, you know, everybody's worried about, but according to the recent statistics, they only own about 200,000 acres. Well, that's a pimple on an elephant's back compared to, you know, 34, 35 million acres. The returns of farmland overall compared to what the Chinese can get in, in other investments is just is just too small. And what people don't talk about very much, and I can remember growing up in a farm in Indiana, uh, all the my fathers back in the 1960s complaining about the churches buying up all the land who were not, were not having to pay any taxes. And uh, you know, I will not mention the name of the church. One church is the, has to be the largest landowner in, in the United States, and it's an enormous amount of land that they own. They've been accumulating land for 75 years. And it's hard to compete with an organization that's not paying taxes. And so, you know, when you take a look, take the religious organizations, I would say outside of farmers, they're the largest. But when you take a look at overall farmland right now, it's our estimate and farm management firms we work with that 95% of the land that's been sold at these high prices in the last year has been bought by individual farmers. Well, you've... uh prove to me that you've got a pretty good uh, crystal ball with regard to land. Well, maybe not land prices, but certainly uh, grain prices that cost me that $1,000 almost a decade ago. Where do you see land prices going in the United States? You know, we generally don't think of land losing value. If you put up your crystal ball, where do you think we'll be in a decade? Well, I don't see it going down a lot. We had a crash in farmland values back in the mid-1980s, and that was caused when interest rates got really high, farmers were leveraging it, and debt was extremely high. And so it wouldn't cash flow. And so we, we saw a lot of forced liquidation sales because of high debt. 
We don't have high debt right now, and you can't have forced liquidation sales without it. And so to think that there's going to be a correction in land values similar to the mid-1980s, I I just don't see how technically that could could actually happen at all. And where a lot of the purchases have happened uh, in the last uh, uh, year, two years, is farmers who, let's say they've accumulated 5,000 acres of ownership with very little debt over the last 50 years, and a 200-acre farm comes up next to them, uh, they'll leverage and borrow against the 5,000 acres that we have no debt. And that's what's made the farm market so hot, because there's a lot of farmers around that are in that financial position. And so they'll use equity of, of land that they've owned for years, uh, to buy the land uh, next to them. And, and, so, and so again, the debt is very low. And, and while I think the run to the upside is, is probably over here short term uh, for the next year, uh, again, it, gets who ha- it comes to who has the money and what they want to do with it. And so we haven't seen any softening of land prices in, in the last year at all. Uh, no matter where you go. I mean, the, the, the market is still extremely hot and the returns are reasonable. What will happen though, is just like this week, the Federal Reserve raised interest rates another three quarters of a point. So now it's getting more expensive to, to leverage farmland because the interest rates are going up. So I think all that's going to do is slow the increase, but not cause a big drop in, in values. Well, all of this transfer or increasing of farmland kind of begs the question as to where does the next generation fit in? How easy or difficult is it for a farm to turn over its assets to the younger generation? And how much of the younger generation is uh, staying in the family business, so to speak? And I imagine that uh, bears on the price of land as well. What's happening is we, we believe, and, and there's no statistic out to prove this, but we think we're going to see more farmers uh, retire this year than we've seen in any one single year in the last decade. I, I don't think there's any question about it. And the reason for that is there are a lot of producers out there that you know started farming in the, in the 1970s uh, when the boom times uh, hit, and, and now they themselves are in their 70s. And they're, they've accumulated a lot of wealth and they can sell their, if they don't want to expand, they can get top dollar for the used farm equipment this winter at, a, at an auction and they can rent the farmland out, kill, keep the farmland. We're not going to see them selling it. They're going to keep it and rent it uh, either to other family members or to a neighboring farmer. And so then what drives this, for example, a new John Deere or Case IH combine with uh, a corn head and a bean head can cost as much as $1.3 million. So a producer saying, if I'm paying this much for equipment, I need to farm more more acres to spread the cost of this equipment out per acre. And so that's another reason you're seeing a, a push to the upside in land values. Farmers are wanting to spread out their, their fixed cost of equipment uh, by farming more acres. And so and, and now with the technology that's out there, it's, it's very feasible for them to do that. Rick, I read a, a farm journal called the High Plains Journal, and I was reading an article by a woman named uh, Janelle Shemper, and she was somewhat complaining her business is harvesting. I gather only harvesting, and uh, she evidently ordered seven new harvesters, and two of them were 
late in coming, which has set her a little bit behind. Uh, I don't know that I fully explain and understand a, a business that only relies on harvesting and that can afford a financial investment to buy uh, seven new harvesters. Could you, uh, I would imagine very few of our audience understand that as well. Could you explain how that works? Yeah, for years, there have been several companies around and all privately owned uh, that only do harvesting and they normally start in Texas and work their way north and it's primarily in wheat. And so the crop matures first in, in the Southern states and then last in the Dakotas. And that's where they end up and they go in. And because the cost of this equipment is so high, the farmer, some farmers will say, you know, I'm better off hiring a company to come in with these much bigger combines that again can cost 1.3 million now and, and let them harvest the wheat. And so they're, you know, they're, they're called custom harvesters and uh, they're, it's been around forever. And, uh, you know, a lot of people are trying different ways, whether it be that or leasing to lower their equipment costs. And so it's, yeah, it drives them crazy. And, and seven combines, that would be pretty normal uh, for a large custom harvester. And again, they just put themselves on a road and for three months, just keep working their way north. And, and that's, again, but it's primarily wheat. Uh, there's a couple companies that will do it in corn, but mostly it's wheat. Hmm. Wow. That, that's fascinating. The, the biggest news that I think our listeners are hearing or reading about of late is uh, an effort to reduce nitrogen fertilizer on farmland for the absurd idea that emissions from nitrogen add to global warming and all the crazy climate change uh, predictions. Could you uh, describe your view of what's going on from your company with uh, nitrogen sales and utilization today? Well, you know, my clients like to grow corn, soybeans, and wheat, and cotton, and they like high yields, and you can't do it without nitrogen. So I'm going to a specific crowd uh, that really wants their nitrogen, and they're using their nitrogen, and it's still used abundantly here in the United States. Most of that trend is in Europe and in the Netherlands, where they've actually had riots, and, and how you can take a country like the Netherlands and cut nitrogen production uh, in that one country and think that's going to save the universe, I, I don't know. I, I'm agreeing with you, Jay. It's the craziest theory I, I've ever heard uh, how that's going to work out. In the meantime, what it's going to do in countries like the Netherlands, which has a very large dairy industry, uh, they're not going to have enough feed uh, to, uh, to feed the dairy cows. And so we're going to see a big cut in dairy production, we think, in the Netherlands. We could see that trend uh, flow over into, into Europe. But we do not see that happening here in the United States uh, because producers here like to produce big crops and you can't do it without nitrogen. Yeah, sorry, just wondering, is that going to affect countries in Africa, for example, who rely on imports of food um, if the Netherlands goes ahead with all of this? I don't think it will. In, in those countries in Africa, in the last uh, five years, uh, we've seen uh, increased production in those countries because companies like, well, Monsanto, which was five years ago purchased by Bayer, uh, all of these big seed companies have been in those areas in, in Africa promoting uh, better crop production. So, mm -hmm. you know, it, it's 
it, it's a false pretense assuming and and the press would love for us to think there's going to be a, a huge shortage of food it's just not going to be the case and a lot of that was fueled by uh, the war in the ukraine and and again that was false um ukraine in the last uh, five years up until the war accounted for 14 percent of the world's corn exports 10 years ago, they had zero, okay? So they've just ramped up because of the improved, improved genetics, allowing them to grow more corn. Uh, Russia's never been in the corn production industry. They're both big in the wheat production industry. But what had happened when the war broke out in February, uh, and their harvest is the same time as ours, they'd already shipped 87% of their exports. So the, everybody, the press had everyone trying to believe that it really hurt last year's exports. Well, it did some. The last 13% didn't get exported and was carried over. Then they thought, well, but we're not going to be able to get it, get it planted this year because they've destroyed too much equipment, et cetera. Well, they planted 91% of the same corn acres they planted last year. And so, you know, bad news sells. And, and so Ukraine has given the press a lot of bad news to harp on and show how it's going to uh, take uh, our food supply down, but it's just not happening, and it's it just not the case. And, and it's just unfortunate that the, the bad news is what sells. That's why newspapers carry an obituary every day, but not a list of those <laughs> who made it through the night. You know, I mean, it's just the way, the way the world works. And so, yeah, well, you, yeah, exactly. you you mentioned the Ukraine, and and I follow. I've got some very good friends on the inside of uh, international governments in Washington. So I really uh, keep up with the Ukraine. In fact, every week I talk to a friend in uh, Germany who travels in and out of uh, Ukraine to see how things are going. The war is going amazingly well. You uh, can't discount any of the good news. But give us a summary of, uh, you, you've alluded to it bits and pieces, but give us a summary of how the Ukraine war at this point has affected American agriculture. Really very little, uh, Jay. We didn't pick up any additional corn exports as a result of, of the war. Most of their corn goes either to Eastern Europe or goes through the Black Sea to Asian countries. And, and some of those countries and understand what corn is used for. Uh, unfortunately, the public thinks we, we consume a lot of corn as people. We don't. Corn is used for basically three things, to feed pigs, chickens, and ethanol plants. That's your primary use of, of, of corn. And so what we saw happening in the pork industry in some of the Asian countries, they started feeding rice if they were running out of corn. You'll feed whatever protein you, you can get available. There's a lot of rice available. And so, you know, we're not back to normal over there, but uh, ships are leaving Odessa on a daily basis uh, now. And, and, and so it's, it's about as back to normal as you could, could hope for in those countries. I was over there myself nine years ago, have toured the grain facilities in Odessa, and, and they're still all standing, and that's the major port over there. And, and so it wasn't damaged. Uh, they tried, but it didn't work. And so I think we're getting fairly close to normal relations over there. And again, as a result of high prices, Russia has ramped up their wheat production enormously. They're going to have the biggest wheat crop this year ever in history, and they're a major player. And, and Ukraine's is going to be 
flat, maybe down a little bit, uh, but they only accounted for 19% of the world's wheat exports. Uh, between the two of them, uh, before the war, they accounted for 39% of the world's wheat exports, but again, only 14% of the corn. And now this year, we think the, the Ukraine will still account for 4% of the world's corn exports, and, and it'll be back to normal. But we're, you know, we're not talking you know, major percentages of, of crops when you're looking at those two countries. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm, I am sure our listeners are amazed how little impact the war has had. And as you pointed out, the press just gives bad news, bad news. And as I said, I'm on the inside of what is really going on uh, in Ukraine. And uh, the Russians are losing big time. And there's little chance that Putin will survive another year. Uh, my prediction is he'll, de- he'll declare victory in the Ukraine and uh, lose. But they're in, in big trouble. Uh, I think we're very close to the end of our first segment right now. And uh, so we'll take a break for a commercial. And when we come back, I want to get back onto the nitrogen situation, particularly talking about listeners hear a lot of an overuse of nitrogen and a pollution of our water supplies, which has changed dramatically in uh, recent years. So when we come back, uh, I will tackle that with you, Rick. Okay, thanks. Yeah, it's great. So we'll just be right back after the break. You already know Genesis plus HOCL is your best defense against viruses. But did you also know it's the most powerful weapon for eliminating airborne mold too? Customers are raving about the Genesis Fogger's ability to tackle mold problems and the bad smells that go with them. And we all know mold is a hazard to your health. There's no airborne invader that Genesis can't handle. Visit genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud to receive a 15% discount on the Genesis Fogger with promo code OUTLOUD. With Genesis, you're ready for anything. Trouble getting to sleep and staying asleep is infuriating. Your mind races, you toss and turn, and the harder you try, the harder it is to drift off. And today's fast-paced digital age makes it tougher. You're not alone. Poor sleep affects over 70% of us. The CDC even labeled insufficient sleep a public health epidemic. Advanced nutrition company, Healthy Cell, created REM sleep to help you quickly fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deep, and wake refreshed. Unlike other supplements that don't work, REM sleep is not a pill. It's a gel you swallow with ultra-absorption of science-backed ingredients, supporting all four stages of sleep using calming herbs, amino acids, and sleep hormone support. Over a thousand reviews with an average star rating of over 4.4 proves it works. Take back your sleep. Go to HealthyCell.com and use limited time code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Risk-free. Love it or your money back. Guaranteed. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD. As Americans, we seek to form a more perfect union. To paraphrase Abraham Lincoln, we are a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. And God willing, we shall not perish from the earth. AmericaOutloud.com Liberty and justice for all. We're back with Rick Brock, president of Brock Associates. Rick is an expert in agriculture, and we're learning a lot about the inside story of what's actually happening in America's farms. 
So, Jay, you had a question about nitrogen. Yes, uh, people have been reading about uh, cutting back on nitrogen to stop global warming. That is 100% absurd, uh, fraudulent. But people here in Ohio will remember when they've had some surface water bodies contaminated by an overuse of nitrogen. That has all been eliminated here in Ohio for a number of reasons. First of all, uh, the excess nitrogen wasn't giving increased yield. The farmers really didn't understand what's an optimal amount. And we're able to look at a corn plant as an example and tell when it needs more fertilizer and when it doesn't need more fertilizer. And we've pretty much eliminated at least 80% of the nitrogen that used to flow into some of our surface bodies and uh, contaminate them. But I'm sure that's still in the mind of a lot of our listeners. So give a synopsis of where the technology of uh, nitrogen use uh, stands and and any continuing concerns uh, for contamination of overuse of nitrogen. Well, what's happening, a lot of the improvements, as you pointed out, Jay, have become uh, available because of changes in technology. And we can get the same or better yields by specific applications of fertilizer now, where before, you know, say 15 years ago, farmers would just, you know, broadband uh, the, the spray and spreading of fertilizer. And that just doesn't happen hardly at all anymore. Farm equipment, uh, there's a company in California called Am- Amvac Chemical uh, that has created a, a new technology for placement of fertilizer next to a seed and making sure that, you know, it's not even being spread in between the rows. It's just going on the row uh, where the seed is. And that kind of technology is really eliminating overuse of fertilizer and has basically eliminated, I think, the runoff problems that we have. And, and that same thing's happened in all other Midwestern states as is happening in your state in Ohio. Well, that really is exciting. Uh, I wanna turn a little bit to uh, politics as we're now uh, only about six weeks away from our midterm election. I'm sure audience wonders where the farm community stands. And I wonder, I really no longer have a good read, but if you were to guess on in the November 8th election, what percentage of the farm community will uh, vote for Republicans and what percent are likely to vote for Democrats? How does it split up? Uh, This year, and I'm not an expert on it, but I, I know a lot of people think they are experts on it. And uh, about two thirds of the, of the today's farmers will, will go Republican. Uh, and it varies obviously by state. You, know, you get in states like New York and Minnesota, you're gonna find a lot more liberal Democrats than you think. And frankly, there are quite a few in Iowa, uh, even. You get in a state like Indiana, I don't know if you'll find a Democrat. Uh, they're uh, 90% Republican in the state of Indiana. And then, you know, you get into states like Arkansas and it's a different type of Democrat that's in the Southern states. They're conservative. I tell my Democratic friends in in the Southern states, I said, you would not survive in the Northern states because it's just a different way of looking at things. They they wouldn't make it. And so you're gonna have a higher percentage though of of Democrats in those states, but still it's very dominant Republican. Uh, When Trump ran last, uh, 75% were Trump fans. 
And, uh, and so I don't think we've backed off of that. Where producers get upset, and this is both Republican and Democrat alike, is the amount of money that in our farm budget that goes for nutritional programs, i.e. food stamps. 75% of the budget goes for that. And I don't think the public is aware of that. You know, it's not going to support farmers or support farm price. It's going for the food uh, programs and, and food stamps, which is, has got so much fraud in it, it's unbelievable. And so a lot of the money the government spends is that. And, and, and so, you know, what, what we see, though, in the difference between a Republican and Democrat administrations when it comes to agriculture, the Democrats will push much harder for those liberal food stamp type programs, nutrition, spend a lot of money on that rather than direct payments to farmers themselves. And I think that's why you find a lot more producers that lean more Republican uh, than, than Democrat because of the way the money is spent under the two different parties. Yes, yeah, so the media uh, promotes farm welfare and all the money in the budget and rarely points out where you just said, the vast majority of it goes to food stamps that has nothing to do with agriculture, but it's in the agricultural budget because it is, uh, it is food. How does agriculture work out in an administration that is Republican versus Democrat, like what it was during the Trump administration and what has become in the last two years under the uh, Biden administration? Or does the farm politics stay about the same in Washington? My opinion, overall, the farm politics does not change that much. You know, it's not like, you know, some of the other government positions, but uh, ag policy normally stays around longer and is more stable. And even the Secretary of Agriculture that's in this administration, uh, he leans uh, fairly conservative for, for a Democrat. And so we don't see dramatic changes. Uh, again, when we do see changes, it's going to be how much money goes into these food programs, these giveaways, and, and then you're back to some very fraudulent activities. But it's slow moving. You know, it's interesting. 30 years ago, the Secretary of Agriculture position was almost always the head of an ag econ department from a, from a land-grant university. That's how you became Secretary of Agriculture. Now it's a politically appointed position. You're never going to have someone uh, from, I don't think, ever again from an agriculture college being Secretary of Agriculture. It's just, it's a, it's a political payback now uh, to get those positions. So, so you get a lot of people in there, and, and I, I don't think it happens often in the agriculture area, but don't have the experience that is needed. But I, I think even in the last four administrations, Republican and Democrat, both, we've had some uh, people in those positions that have a pretty good understanding of agriculture. And, and of course, you've got your career politicians in Washington that work in these in administrative roles. And, and most of those, as we all know, lean towards the liberal side. But Fortunately, I think for farmers, it doesn't change a lot. Mm, that's good. That's good. Why does everybody, all candidates, start off their campaigns in Iowa? They make it sound like, you know, the farm vote is, uh, is everything. That sounds like it's wrong and it's just kind of a tradition. Where do you stand on that? Yeah, I don't know why that is. I'm sure there is a reason why it always starts in Iowa. And of course, we're fortunate that we don't elect presidents and other politicians in D.C. Uh, on a popular vote. 
because uh, agriculture would lose if we went to that. Everybody then would just campaign in New York, Chicago, and Los Angeles, and all your major cities. Uh, but they need a state like Iowa, and Iowa can be a swing state and often is a swing state. And so that's where they're going to start. And uh, they have their caucuses. It always starts earlier there. And so I, I think that's one of the reasons they, they start in Iowa to begin with. Earlier in the discussion, you mentioned what we use corn for. And uh, I'm guessing most of our audience realizes that it's more animal feed than what we call sweet corn and eat all summer long. But you mentioned that it's for pigs and chickens, and you mentioned ethanol. And I would think that most of our listeners are really curious what role ethanol plays. We know the government requires it to be mixed in our gasoline. Most people are aware you only get two-thirds the energy out of ethanol to drive a car as you do from uh, petroleum. But I'm surprised that it has withstood a lot of criticism in terms of all the money that goes into corn for ethanol. How would you summarize well, where for, you for stand? For one thing, the public is, is um, misdirected into think that the government supports ethanol production. They don't. They never have. They never paid farmers a dime to stimulate corn production for ethanol. It's just never happened. Uh, the oil companies have been paid fees when it first started to offset uh, the lack of uh, oil that was going to be used because of ethanol. This year, we'll produce about 15 billion bushels of corn. Now, out of that 15 billion bushels, 5.2 of it will be used for to feed pigs and chickens. 5.3 of it will be used in ethanol plants. So both accounts use about one-third of the corn that's produced. We only export about 2.2 to 2.3 billion uh, bushels. So but the, the real strong reason to be supportive of ethanol is that is the one product that really does help the environment. Uh, the emissions are, are far less using ethanol as a fuel than, than gasoline as a fuel. And what most people don't recognize either is it's been proven that your gasoline mileage actually improves up to E30, 30% of, of, of the mixture. You get over that, then it's going to start declining quite a bit. And, and if you're burning E85, 85% ethanol, you are going to get a, a lower mileage, but it's offset by a much lower price because ethanol is much cheaper uh, than gasoline. And only though in states like North and South Dakota and Minnesota uh, are the states that I know of that have blender pumps that you can just go up there and say, okay, I want the 60% blend, turn the dial to 60% and you got a 60% ethanol blend. I don't know of any other states other than those three uh, that have those kind of, uh, that kind of ability. Uh, where I live part of the time in Wisconsin, I can get a 15% blend and I, I know that I get a better gas mileage at 15% than I do at a 10% blend in my vehicles, and it's not hard on the engine. So, you know, I, I wish, frankly, for the sake of the economy, the environment, and farmers, that we would have more availability of at least E15. But, you know, the, the ethanol industry has been stuck in this position now for at least the last five years. We've not seen any expansive use 
of ethanol from where we're at right now. Uh, the general public has been misled as to what it does to engines and what how it works in efficient. See, uh, you know, I think people need to ask themselves, well, if it's not good, why do Indy 500 cars use 100% ethanol? <laughs> Rick, that was, <laughs> that was my next question. I have always thought that the Indy 500 cars are 100% ethanol and and thank you for uh, answering that it, it's it's fascinating uh, to me have they ever used anything but ethanol in your lifetime yeah i, I think they went to 100 ethanol about 20 years ago and i'm just guessing at that someone listening to this would know a better answer than that but back when i was growing up on the farm in indiana and we went to the indy 500 every year i only lived 30 miles from there and so we always went to it. And of course, it's a fascinating race. And I don't believe in the 60s, they were using 100% ethanol. In fact, I'm pretty certain that they weren't. Mm -hmm. We often hear that people are concerned about replacing food for fuel by using ethanol and, and that somehow this is going to affect our food supply. Is that overblown as a concern? Completely overblown since it's only pigs that basically that eat it, pigs and chickens. And, uh, you know, so it's not going to really, it's not changing the food supply at all. We, there, there's no food shortage. And, uh, you know, I don't think we ever, we ne have never had one in our lifetime. I don't think we'll ever have one in the rest of my lifetime. And so it's, uh, it's a very efficient system. I think it's hit a, a nice balance level. We've been at this level of corn for ethanol for at least the last 10 years now. We don't see any new plants being built. Uh, the only new plants we've seen being built now are bio uh, renewable diesel uh, plants for, that use soybean oil. And uh, that is the big movement right now for California wants a renewable uh, diesel fuel that is made out of soybean oil that is very, more favorable for the environment. And so we're seeing a big movement towards that. And only one pl new plant that I know of uh, went up this year, uh, but there are about seven others on the drawing board right now uh, to do that. So the, the leaning is not now pushing for more ethanol, it's more uh, re renewable diesel. So you're not storing up lots of food then, like these preppers, you're not concerned, you're not concerned about uh, food supply in the future? No, I'm, I'm not a food store, no. I, <laughs> I just go to the grocery store when I need it. And, and the only thing I've ever had a shortage of is toilet paper. And we won't have that. <laughs> well, I want to I stick on the topic of uh, food. And uh, everybody has heard of GMO. And you go to the grocery store and there's still too many packages that say non-GMO. Genetically modified organisms and what it stands for have never under any circumstances sickened a human being on earth. And yet uh, there is a lobby that used to be very, very strong. I have a sense it's weakened, but it's, it's for false advertising entirely. Give us your uh, take on the GMO controversy. If, if it wasn't for GMO, we wouldn't be able to feed the world. I mean, it's been a great plus for all of agriculture and for uh, the world as a whole because it increased yields a lot. And what people also, I mean, that gets some kind of a idea in their mind that is, you know, it's, it's like weird science or whatever. GMO development has been around longer than any of us have been alive. I mean, our land-grant universities have been working on genetically modifying seed forever. And, and the most important part of it is, to give you an example, it, it happened in corn. And the genetically modification was, was to make the corn resistant to Roundup. It's called Roundup Ready Corn. And this happened, you know, 
30, 40 years ago. And what it allows for is for a producer to uh, use a genetically modified seed that are resistant to Roundup. And so and once the corn crop's planted and, and, and weeds start to come up, they can just go in and spray this crop one time with Roundup. And you would think the environmentalists would be in favor of this. Why? Because when I grew up on a farm, we didn't have this available. We'd have to go in and cultivate a crop uh, normally four times a summer. Okay, that meant running a tractor across the field at four different times during the summer, burning a lot of fuel and polluting the atmosphere. Now they don't have to do it at all. Okay, you just one time spray and you're done and, the, and these crops are taken care of. And so the, the resistance and then you have some in the south, they, they're genetically modified to resu- resist insects and, and from getting killed. We, we wouldn't be able to live today if it wasn't for genetically modified food. And it's just uh, seed. And it's just crazy. Now, a lot of this has stopped. You don't see as much resistance right now. And basically, part of it is due to the fact that Monsanto s- sold out to Bayer. So now the headquarters is in Germany, not, not in the United States, although they have a major headquarters in St. Louis. And the other seed companies do too. But you don't see the rioters and the picketers and, and et cetera. So we're never going to get rid of it. And, and again, the People that are against it have, have really cooled down a lot and, and realized that, you know, how are we going to eat if we don't have genetically modified seed? Mm. Well, let me repeat that for the audience. We couldn't feed the world today uh, without the advances in bioengineering with genetically modified uh, seeds. So, you know, if you choose to buy a package of food uh, that says non-GMO, probably it could easily be something that uh, was never uh, GMO, would never have uh, anything in it, but be not concerned at all. And all the negative hype you have witnessed throughout your life is absolutely uh, wrong. So I want to move there to another topic on food that I feel similarly about, and that is eating organic food. I have read hundreds of studies showing that crops that are grown organically, which essentially means no manufactured fertilizers, are in no way uh, healthier than uh, those that are grown conventionally. What is your take on that? Well, in fact, it's the opposite. They're, they're less healthy than, than conventionally raised crops. Now, I'm not anti-organic. I can tell you that me personally, I'm not going to pay the extra money for organic because I'm, I'm not convinced it's any better at all. And the best example I can give is eggs. Uh, if people really look at the label on the inside cover of, of a carton of eggs, it'll tell you the nutritional content uh, of those eggs. And I can almost guarantee you, you're gonna find that the majority of organic eggs, the nutritional content is far less than a, than a regular egg. In fact, there's a lot of difference in eggs and uh, I'm not, shouldn't be saying a name to do a promotion. But if you take a look at a, an organic egg versus a, a product uh, that uh, is franchised, Eglin's Best, you'll find that Eglin's Best over most organic eggs has three times or, or more uh, the vitamin A content. It has a higher protein value and, and it has uh, lower fat value. And you'll find that in some organic eggs, uh, the nutritional value uh, is just so far under a regular egg. It's, it's crazy. Now, do some people think it makes them feel better? And that's fine. You know, I mean, I, I, and that, I have a lot of friends that, that 
don't want us, we'll spend their money on organic. But I got to tell a really short, funny story because a lot of organic is just what people want to believe. And my wife is very phobic of snakes. If she sees the snakes, she goes hysterical. And we were one day, we, she saw a snake outside in our driveway. And she says, Rick, if you don't figure out a way to get rid of this snake, these snakes, we need to sell this place and move. That's how bad she is. I go to the hardware store and I run, as soon as I go in, uh, a retired Lutheran minister whose daughters used to babysit for us, had retired and become now a salesman in the hardware store. And I told him my problem. He says, Rick, you know, know when I know there's no such thing as a snake repellent. But he says, I can help you out. And he gives me a bottle of chub warmer and pellets. And he says, sprinkle these around. Tell Kathy it's a snake repellent. I spent my life trying to convince people to believe in whatever they want to believe in Luther ministry. And he said, if you tell your wife she believes it, she it, it, it'll solve all your problems. And I got to tell you, I did that. And for eight years, she would. I hear telling people that I bought a snake repellent and the snakes are all gone. And finally, after eight years, I thought, I, I can't run the risk of her finding out from someone else that, that I've been lying all along, that there is no such thing. And, but that, that's kind of the way I look at GMO. If people believe that it's better for them, then that's fine. Uh, I personally don't believe that it's better for them. Uh, you mean, some, you mean organic. And yet I have some, have some very well-educated friends that, that, that believe in it. And, but it's, a, it's such a small percent of our food consumption. I, I just, yeah, it's kind of a mute issue to me. Well, yeah. I relate to, uh, to everything you've just said. First of all, Tell your wife that I am easily as petrified of snakes as she is, and we will find them in our fish pond on occasion. And I tell my wife to go get a net, catch that snake, and let it go as far away as she possibly can, or I'm absolutely immobilized, so we share that. <laughs> now, I also have a hobby, my wife and I, of raising laying hens. We have 27 uh, hens, and we have absolutely a gorgeous hen house, what we call an aviary that protects them from critters and a pasture. And we give all the eggs away. We just do it for fun. And most of our friends say, oh, your eggs are absolutely fabulous, the best tasting eggs. My wife and I can't tell the difference. We just do it because uh, it, it absolutely is fun. But to answer the, uh, or let you know, about uh, organic food, everybody knows the term vegan. A vegan is someone that only uh, eats organic food. And you'll be shocked to know that the percent of vegan population in the United States is uh, 0.05. Very, very few people. Every so often, some football player will go vegan and the vegan people will brag about it. And of course, you don't find out that Six weeks later, the coach told him to get off of that because he wasn't uh, doing his job on the line. So, yeah, there's, there's so much in agriculture uh, that, that is false and it's sad, it's unnecessary. The, the GMO idea comes from biotechnology. Uh, are we a leader in biotechnology? I know uh, the Chinese uh, do an awful lot of it in agriculture. Where do we compare? Uh, to them in continuing to improve our grains through biotechnology. I, I think the United States remains a leader in biotech. 
we have so many universities that have some very smart people uh, working on this constantly. And, you know, we see yields increasing, we see diets uh, improving. So, you know, I don't think that the Chinese have anything on us when it comes to increasing our, our biotechnology understanding and our production. Our yields are so much better than Chinese yields are. And, and a lot of that is because they're not using the highest uh, end uh, seed uh, genetics. And, and plus their, their climate, most of the corn is raised, you know, north of Beijing. I mean, it's just, it's like trying to raise corn in Canada. I mean, it's just the growing seasons are short and, and they're not as, as productive. And so, you know, it's, um, I don't know that anyone has an answer to that, Jay, but uh, I, I think we do a, a pretty darn good job here in improving our food quality as we, as we move forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah, talking about Canada, I had one quick question because we only have a minute to go. But if the Trudeau government is successful and do bring in a massive reduction in nitrogen emissions, nitrous oxide, thereby reducing fertilizers for perhaps 30%, what would be the impact on our agriculture, do you think? Well, I, I, that would be supportive for our agriculture because I don't see us doing <laughs> that. And, yeah. and so, you know, they're going to they would then have to start importing grain. Uh, wow. They would have not have enough grain if they really went that direction. So uh, I just that would be a, a good a big plus for U.S. agriculture. <laughs> yeah, but not so great for Canada. Okay, well we better wrap up. You know, it's funny I forgot to do timing practically for most of the show because I was so interested in what you're saying. So our guest today has been. Richard Brock or Rick Brock, president of Brock Associates. We've been learning all about the inside story of what's happening in farming. It's a very positive story and something that's very optimistic than the week, that's for sure. So Rick, thanks for being our guest today. Thanks for having me. Okay, so this is Dr. Jay Lair and Tom Harris signing out from the other side of the story.